Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. So, some of you might already know this, but I always practice my sermons in front of Lalia um, the night before, and she gives me last-minute edits and makes my sermons better. Um, and I can tell you right now that this one is awesome. <laughs> because she fell asleep halfway through. And then I might have gotten upset, but then she's a mother of a toddler and a baby, so we give grace, right? Or just my sermon's not that good, so it's like... Um, she often does actually fall asleep about 30 minutes before I go to sleep, and that gives me some time to do what high schoolers do, which is go on YouTube. Anyone? You guys do that? And you just get lost in a world of YouTube videos, and then they suggest more clips, and it becomes this whole thing. I've been watching um, this street preacher, like evangelist. I don't know why I've gone down this path, but like I've started following this guy. I like the way that he is super logical and methodical, the way he explains the gospel to people. But honestly, his style of evangelism is just not something that I personally teach or practice. Um, He and many other really well-meaning Christian men and women have a goal of really explaining, defending Christianity so that people will believe it and then their hopes is that, the, that once that person believes it, they'll become more like Jesus. And at the end of all of that, then they're kind of welcomed to belong in the church. So the order goes, believe, become, belong. And this is still a viable option, but I'm here this morning to tell you that I think that there is a better way. And I've come to this conclusion not only through personal experience, but through studying Jesus and through studying the way that he um, ministered to people. You just heard read uh, Levi's story, where Jesus is hanging out with a bunch of sinners and tax collectors. This is just one example of how Jesus made people feel like they belonged before anything else. When Jesus says, follow me, he is declaring something that every single person needs to hear. He says, I want you. I want you with me. I want to be in your life. You don't have to know any creeds or doctrines or scripture. First, Jesus says, I want you to know that you belong with me, and more importantly, you belong to me. Now, perhaps more than ever, people want to feel a sense of belonging. Has anyone ever heard of a woman named, I think it's a woman, uh, Tracy Couch? Tracy's one of those names that could go either way. Anyone heard of Tracy Couch? No? Okay, so she got named last year uh, the Minister of Loneliness in Britain. So the UK actually appointed someone to this high political office to help combat loneliness in the country. And they actually think that it's such a bad health epidemic. They believe, along with a lot of doctors and scientists, that loneliness is more detrimental to human health than smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. And it seems weird, because we see the paradox all around us. We're more connected than we've ever been because of technology, 
And yet some statistics say that one in four Americans do not have a single person in their life that they can confide in. Just one person. And if that statistic is even close to true, it's tragic. I've been predominantly ministering to students for the past decade, and I'm not alone in my observations about them. Friendships are losing their depth. Everyone seems to be keeping each, other's, each other at arm's distance. People are afraid to be vulnerable because they do not want to be hurt or abandoned. And that's not just the reality for teenagers. That's the reality for so many people. People are scrambling to find answers and solutions. I read this this week. Look at the headline. Researchers are working on a pill for loneliness. Yeah, you read that, like a pill for loneliness. And I read about the scientist who's spearheading this endeavor, and I considered sending her an email. And if I was going to send her an email, it would say something like this. Please, madam, stop what you are doing. I have the most excellent news for you. There is no need for you to waste any more resources in the development of your drug. I have found the cure that you are looking for. It is Christ and his church. And then she might respond. You cl don't clap too soon, because she might respond, oh yeah, how's that been working out for you? And then I would say, touche. Because the reality is, we need to be better. There are still hurting and lonely people all around us who are desperate for community. So how should we go about reaching them and by doing so, live into this specific church's vision of leading all in our community to become lifelong disciples of Jesus Christ? So let's turn in scripture to Luke chapter 19. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 878. While you're turning there, I'll pray for us. Jesus, would you speak like only you can speak? Would you tune our ears to hear your voice ever so clearly? Would you tune our hearts to experience all that we have, that you have for us? God, would the words from my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you? Jesus, be glorified and magnified in this place. Amen. So before we get into Luke 19, I want to give some context for you. Right before this morning's text in Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable that's pretty straightforward. He compares a Pharisee to a tax collector. Both men go to the temple in order to pray. And so the Pharisee steps up to the plate, and he prays. This is his specific prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Then Jesus fills us in on how the tax collector prays. And so the tax collector stands off to the side after he's just been insulted by the Pharisee, and his face is downcast, and he beats his chest, and he prays this really simple prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So with this parable fresh in our minds, we open to Jesus' real-life interaction with a tax collector. Luke 19, verse 1. 
he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So as we unpack this text, I'm going to begin with an assumption. I believe that we can assume Zacchaeus was a lonely man. Now, it's an argument from silence, which means that it's not actually in the biblical text. But the reason I believe that is because Zacchaeus is a tax collector. And tax collectors were some of the lowest people on the social totem pole. They were likened to beggars or to um, widows or to children. And not only was Zacchaeus a tax collector, but he was the top dog. He was the chief tax collector, and he was the tax collector in Jericho. So this was a very lucrative position in a very important area of the world for trade at that time. Zacchaeus was rich, but he was getting rich by collecting taxes from his own people on behalf of the Roman occupying nation, the empire. And not only that, later on we read and can assume that he was skimming some money off the top, stealing from his own people. So he probably wasn't liked that much by many of his neighbors or his family. But like many of uh, his fellow townspeople, Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is coming to town. So he gets really excited because he wants to just catch a glimpse of this famous traveling rabbi. But there's one little problem, pun intended. He's short, little, forget you guys. <laughs> now, usually being short in this type of situation is not, not such a huge dilemma. What happens if you go to a parade and you're a short person or a child? Usually you just kind of do this and weasel to the front and then you're not blocking anyone's view because you're smaller and they can see over you and it's a win-win for everyone. Everyone can see. But Zacchaeus' problem is not just that he's short, it's that he knows that this crowd is probably not going to let him through. But Zacchaeus was resilient, so he's like, I'm not going to take no for an answer and he runs up ahead, he plans where Jesus is going to go and he climbs up into this tree. And Luke and scholar Joel Green says this about the situation. He says, Zacchaeus goes to extraordinary lengths to fulfill his quest, even enduring the probable shame of climbing a tree despite his adult male status and position in the community as a wealthy ruler, however notorious. That he goes to such lengths is, an, is illustrative of his eagerness, to be sure, but is also a consequence of the crowd which has positioned itself as a barrier to his endeavor. 
Zacchaeus' persistence in the face of opposition from the crowd is rewarded by Jesus. And we see this in verse 5. And when Jesus came to this place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So if we put ourselves back into that scenario, there's a large crowd gathered. One of the biggest for Jesus, because actually this is the last kind of stop on Jesus' journey before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So he has quite the following at this point. And there's a big crowd lining the streets, and there's this guy who is sitting in a tree just like this one. And when Jesus gets to the place where the, the shadow from that or the shade from that tree um, is cast, he looks up and he sees a man, like a grown man in one of those tunic dresses, sitting in a tree. And he knows the guy's name. He calls him down from the tree. And at this point, the crowd's probably gasping. They're probably all shocked. But before we get into any details about how the, the, the crowd actually responds, we look at how Zacchaeus responds. You see, Zacchaeus' whole plan was that he was hoping to see Jesus. But it turns out in the end that he is the one who is actually seen. And Jesus extends this invitation to a social outcast, and Zacchaeus joyfully and happily accepts. Because this would have been a great honor to host someone of Jesus' reputation in your home. And for Jesus' part in all of this, he is on a clear divine mission. Jesus didn't say that he wanted to go to Zacchaeus' house. If you look at that word right there, he says he must go to Zacchaeus' home. He had to be with Zacchaeus. Jesus needed to share a meal and forge a friendship with a broken and lonely man. He wanted the opportunity to tell him about the kingdom of God. But as you can imagine, the, the crowd was less than enthused about this whole situation. They were bitter. They were wondering, why would Jesus bestow such an honor on a jerk like Zacchaeus? Isn't Jesus worried about his own reputation? What are people going to say about him? What are we saying about him right now? Surely someone else would have been a better choice. So they grumbled and complained because Jesus was going to the home of a sinner. And again, Joel Green explains, labeling Zacchaeus a sinner and by extension calling Jesus' status into a question on account of his willingness to receive hospitality from a sinner. So the response of grumbling in light of Jesus' table companions is nothing new in Luke's gospel. Such a reaction demonstrates how Jesus' mission runs counter to expected social norms. We're like that crowd. We try to put Jesus into a neat little box of our own making. But Jesus is God and we are not. And that should relieve us. That should make us feel really thankful because Jesus sees the whole picture. Because you see... In verse 8, upon spending some time with Jesus, hosting Jesus, Zacchaeus' heart is overwhelmed, and he responds with repentance. He is transformed by Jesus' presence in such a way that he's willing to give away half of his vast wealth 
And then on top of that, he wants to right every wrong he's ever done by paying back people he's stolen from four times what he stole. On that day, Zacchaeus received him. That is Jesus himself. Not primarily a creed or a doctrine, not a theory and not a ceremony, but Jesus. And thus, Jesus' divine mission, as it always has been and always will be, was successful. Salvation came into Zacchaeus' home and into his heart. Our mission at CPC is to make disciples and grow Christ-like followers of Jesus. If we are to fulfill our divine mission on this peninsula, then we have to be a place where skeptics and seekers and not yet believers feel welcome. Every person should feel like they belong when they walk onto our campus. So I'm going to give you a little bit of proof about why this methodology of evangelism works so well. It's an example. I'm going to show you a short video clip in a moment. Every Wednesday night, we um, give the high school students at Youth Group an opportunity to share their story. So one student per Wednesday shares their story. Usually we have them lined up, and so they give us kind of a taste of what they're going to speak about. Um, but also sometimes we do something a little crazy. If no one is lined up, we let just any old person come up to this lectern and share what's on their heart, which can be really nerve-wracking to let a high school student do, do that. But the risk has been well worth the reward. Um, I'm going to show you this video, and I, I want to warn you that the quality is not good, the quality of the video, but it's the quality of what Dylan says in this video is that what really matters. It's, it's so good so far. I can hear it like kind of muffled. Is it not going to work? Oh, okay. Don't worry about it. Just stop it, Travis. I'll tell you what he says. I'm sorry, Dylan. Like it was your, you were ready. It was all good to go. Um, so this is what Dylan says in that video. So, so let me just explain the situation to you. This was his second time ever at our youth group. Second time ever. And he comes up onto the stage to share a story with his peers. Second time ever. And he had been sharing about some struggles in his life, um, a situation uh, with, was it your cousin? That, yeah, that had ALS and had recently passed. And so he had shared this story with us, had been extremely vulnerable with us, and this is how he ended his story that night. And so I started coming here, and I didn't really believe it all, and I'm still getting there. But it was just so nice to come here and truly get embraced by everyone. For saying all of the things they've said, how happy they are to see me, how happy they are that I'm here, and I would just like to thank all of you for truly being there. Thank you. So this young man boldly steps up, and he tells everyone, including the pastor, that he doesn't believe what everyone else believes. But he also thanks everyone for just giving him a place and embracing him. And I am happy to report to you that three weeks ago on houseboats, Dylan surrendered his life to Jesus Christ 
Yeah. He belonged before he believed. About a year ago, I preached a sermon based on Brent Hansen's book called Unoffendable. Pastor Dorothy has been reading that book, and she reminded me of this quote a few days ago. Refusing to be offended by others is a powerful door opener to actual relationships. I don't expect people who aren't believers to act like followers of Jesus. Why should they? How about I give up the sanctimonious act and just love them without thinking I need to change their moral behavior? On houseboats, we brought 92 high school students, and I would say most of them, if not, I mean, about half of them had never really heard the gospel before. And so I tried to um, set up the leaders for success by just painting the picture of who they were ministering to that week. But when they first got on the boats and heard some of the things that the kids were saying, they were a little shocked, um, even though I tried to prepare them. And they weren't just shocked by the bad things that, that were coming out of some of the kids' mouths. They were also shocked by the lack of good things that were coming out of their mouths. To be honest, many of these teenagers knew absolutely nothing about the things of God in the Bible. But rather than condemn them or speak down to them, the leaders and the Christian students did something utterly spirit-led. They treated every single person without exception like they belonged. It was awe-inspiring to witness as the Holy Spirit created this sense of unity. Over and over again, everyone was struck by the family feel that was fostered there. People became closer and closer, and not a single person felt like they were alone. And I believe that that environment led to the softening of hearts. And God had fertile fertile ground to plant seeds and Salvation came to 10 students on that trip. They belonged first, and then they believed. And now, now that they're back, they begin the lifelong journey of becoming more and more like Christ. And I believe that we experience such an overwhelming response because we are able to offer something that people are longing for but they can't find anywhere else, not on their sports teams, not in their clubs, not in the classroom, not in their friendships. We are creating here an authentic community. And our souls crave it. And they found it on houseboats. They knew that they were known and that they were loved. In many ways, Carmel Prez is fostering that same sense of community week in and week out. But My question this morning is, how are we doing when it comes to enfolding new people into our church, especially those people that don't look like us, that don't dress like us, or even believe what what we believe? And so I've got a litmus test for us all to take right now in our own minds. Answer this question. Honestly, would you be comfortable and confident inviting a non-Christian friend, neighbor, or family member to this church? If your answer is yes, then do it. (laughs) Invite them. Because they're all craving 
godly community, whether they realize it or not. And then if your answer is no, I'm going to press on that a little bit and say, what can you personally do to make this place more welcoming to the least, the lost, and the lonely? So you could join the greeting team, the ushers, to be the face of our church welcoming people in. You could do something creative, like start a small group for skeptics, specifically for skeptics, that you don't let anyone else in who thinks they have it all together, just people who are skeptics. <laughs> so I know someone who's doing it. Or you could just bring someone to the beach party tonight. Those types of events are exactly, like the whole purpose of those is to foster community and a family feel amongst our church. Heaven forbid you show up and eat pizza and drink and have s'mores. Like, that's what we want. We want people to experience. There's nothing going to be weird going on except for spike ball. If you've never played, it's kind of weird. <laughs> we read the story of Zacchaeus this morning and saw how Jesus treated him. Zacchaeus was a sinner despised by everyone, and yet Jesus reached out to him. And as I was preparing this sermon, it hit me. This formula that I'm preaching about, belong believe, become. This was the pathway for every single one of the disciples. Jesus invited them to follow him first. He invited them into a close, intimate relationship, and then we see time and time again how the disciples just get it wrong. They do not have right belief for so much of their time with Jesus, but Jesus lets them know that they still have a place with him. Until finally, it clicked. And after they belonged a while, then they finally believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But they didn't become rock star Christians or leaders of the church right after that. If you remember, in Jesus' time of need, they all scattered. It wasn't until after the resurrection and the ascension in the book of Acts where we see the disciples really stepping in and really becoming like Jesus. It's a long process. I know how hard it is just to welcome in anyone. And without naming your concerns, I bet you I share a lot of them. To just fling the doors open wide and let anyone in can be really scary for a lot of different reasons. But here's my promise to you all. Carmel Prez will never compromise our beliefs. We will never stop preaching the whole counsel of God. We will never stop standing on the authority of Scripture. We will never sacrifice good theology for passing fads. But we know that we have the cure to loneliness. And we know that we have the only pathway to God and we can't possibly hoard that kind of information. Silas is three years old now, and he loves listening to fairy tales. His two favorites are Jack and the Beanstalk and then the Three Little Pigs. So you probably remember this, this little fairy tale, so I'm going to read it to you real quick. Once upon a time, there were three little pigs who went out on their own. The first little pig was very lazy. He didn't want to work at all, and he built his house out of straw. The second little pig worked a little bit harder, but he was kind of lazy too, and he built his house out of sticks. Then they sang and danced and played together the rest of the day. 
The, the third little pig worked hard all day and built his house with bricks. It was a sturdy house, complete with a fine fireplace that paid dividends in the end. It looked like it, it could withstand the strongest winds. Well, the next day, a wolf smelled the pigs and knocked on each of their do doors, starting with the, the straw house. You all may remember what happens next. He knocked on the door and he says, little pig, little pig, let me in, let me in. And the pig replies, no, 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 not by the hairs on my chinny chin chin. Then the wolf shows his teeth and he says, then I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down. So he huffed and he puffed and he blew the house down and the first little pig escaped and he went to his brother's house, the house made of sticks. And the same thing happens in that scenario. And then the, the two little brothers run to the third brother's house, the one made of bricks. And this house was much too sturdy for the wolf to blow down and the three little pigs were saved. So what does our culture say the moral of this story is. Our culture says that the moral is to work hard, that hard work pays off, that we shouldn't slack. While the first two pigs quickly built homes and had more free time to play, the third little pig labored in the construction of his house of bricks. But what can the church learn that the culture seems to neglect about this story? The pig with the best house and the firm foundation welcomes in the other two pigs in order to protect them from the prowling wolf. He does not require them to answer a set of questions or explain themselves. He sees that they are in need and he opens up his home to them. And the world says that that isn't fair. The world grumbles like the crowd when they see Jesus enter into Zacchaeus' home. But we're not the world. We are God's chosen people who know that the kingdom of God is near. May we live and function in such a way that glorifies our gracious and loving Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us to be gracious and welcoming to any and all. Help us to be your ambassadors wherever we are. And God, for those who are here and they're feeling lonely, I pray now that you would make your presence known to them, that you know their name, that you call them out and that you love them. God, would you bless those individuals with a community of people who love God and love them well? And Jesus, for those of us who feel like we have a wonderful community, may we open up our eyes to see the needs of those around us. May we welcome others in May we be a church that is a place of belonging for many. And God, would you bring us to right belief and would your Holy Spirit work in our lives in such a way that we become more and more like you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.